Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Diabetes Canada CEO Laura Siren talks about living with type 2 diabetes and how many of us do. Dr. Brian Conway has some advice for both flu shots and COVID boosters and how to handle each when your turn comes. Former NDP supporter Kelsey Hannon is still upset with the succession of Premier-designate David Eby on the eve of his swearing-in. And the Fraser Institute's Kenneth Green warns, don't be fooled by per capita emissions metrics. So let's get started. November is Diabetes Awareness Month right around the world. And this year, it's pretty special. It's the 100th anniversary of the revolutionary and life-saving discovery of insulin. But now, even after 100 years of insulin, one in three Canadians are living with diabetes or pre-diabetes. And a million and a half of us have diabetes and don't know about it. Here to talk more about it is the president and CEO of Diabetes Canada. Laura Siren joins us this morning from Calgary. Laura, good morning and welcome. Thank you very much, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Laura, you and I share something in common, and and that's living with type 2 diabetes. I've, I've known about it in my case since about 20 years or so. When were you diagnosed? Only about six years ago, and uh, and maybe like Easterling seemed to come out of nowhere. It was yes. not anything I was expecting. Yeah, they called it adult onset diabetes. My doc, you could have blown me over with a feather when the doctor says, "Well, you know, you've got diabetes." What? <laughs> so how do how do people exactly. get diabetes? What is it, and how do people get it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, really, there are two main kinds of diabetes. There uh, is type 1, which sometimes has been referred to as juvenile diabetes. Um, And that is where your pancreas doesn't actually produce insulin. So um, that usually is more early onset, although sadly we're starting to see it in older adults as well. And then there's type 2 diabetes, which you and I both have, uh, which is about 90% of the cases, so much more prevalent. Um, And that's where over time your pancreas stops being able to function as well as it used to for a whole variety of reasons, and it's really different in everyone, Mm -hmm. and therefore you need help controlling that blood sugar. Well, I remember the type 1. I have a cousin. He's an actual, he's a doctor now, but I remember him as a little guy and he had type 1 and he had to take shots. And and this is a long time ago when needles were really huge and ugly and, and scary as all get out. And he had to take his, his, his needles twice a day, every day. And that's yep. type 1. And that's simply because you can't produce insulin. You are required to administer it in order to stay alive. Now, type 2, your body can produce insulin, uh, Laura, but not enough. So there's some supplementation, yeah. some management, some pharmaceuticals involved. Typically, uh, how manageable is the condition? Yeah, well, um, as in everything in health, it depends when it gets diagnosed um, and uh, depends on you and, and what's happening in your body. So um, generally, in my case, for example, um, I was caught when I had just moved from pre-diabetes, which we should talk about, into diabetes. And so I, with a combination of some lifestyle changes, but also I needed medication. And there's no shame in that. That's something we hear about a lot is, oh, I want to try to not get on the medication. It's like, no, if the medication is like for type 1, the insulin is there to keep you alive and to keep you living a good life. So if you are on 
uh, good medication if you're following your regimen, if um, you're able to uh, really learn as much as possible about your disease, you can live a very good life. Yeah, I agree. I'm very, I'm very lucky. I have uh, I take the, uh, the 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 diabetes management meds twice a day, and and as I say, I've just I consider myself extremely lucky, Laura, because it works. And with a, a reasonable uh, diet uh, approach, uh, it's it's it, it's definitely not too much of an impediment in terms of enjoying life on a daily basis. Now, let's talk about that pre-diabetes and connect that dot to the other one I mentioned moments ago. At least this morning, at least a million and a half Canadian have diabetes, Laura, and don't know it. So is that where pre-diabetes comes in? Actually, those people, that million and a half, they actually have passed pre-diabetes and are in diabetes. And they are walking around. They they may not have a family health uh, care doctor. They may um, not be getting checked. They they may have a doctor, but not be having the right test. Mm -hmm. Pre-diabetes is on your way to diabetes. So your blood sugar levels, what we call, you're very familiar with A1Cs, are starting to elevate. And it's almost that first early warning signal that the doctor can say, hey, these are starting to go up. It's just a marker in your blood of of what your glucose has been over the past three months. Hey, we're starting to see these go up. This means you're on the way to diabetes. So that's what the pre-diabetes, that you're at higher risk. And in a way, if you get that, it's, it, you're lucky to say, okay, so now what can I do? Because about 50% of people will go on to develop diabetes, but if you can catch it early, you have a one in two chance of not going on mm. to get diabetes. So that's the pre-diabetes. And when you put it all together, there are 11.7 million Canadians who either have diabetes or pre-diabetes, and of that 6 million are the pre-diabetes. So it's a really large group, and I would really encourage all your listeners, if you haven't talked to your doctor during your annual physical, first of all, hopefully you're doing an annual physical, Mm -hmm. just say, hey, you know, um, it's Diabetes Awareness Month, I'm thinking about this, and I would just love to understand, you know, what is my, my blood sugar level? And is there any worry, especially if you've had diabetes in the family, but in my case, I don't know about yours. I didn't. Right, me so too. There was nothing, nothing for me to think that. And unfortunately, I at the time was going through a situation where I was changing family doctors, and I missed that window, which is too bad for three years. Where if someone had said, "Hey, Laura, you're pre-diabetic. Let's do something," but instead, I also could have been knocked over with a feather. Yeah. Of my doctor just turned around and said, "You know, you have diabetes." And I just, and I didn't even know how to process that. I wasn't sure what that meant. If someone had turned around and said, you've had a heart attack or you've got Parkinson's or you've had, you know, you have cancer, I would know what that meant. Right. But I really, I I wasn't working at Diabetes Canada then. And I really had to like, what what are the complications that I need to worry about? And, And there are significant complications if, if it's not managed well. And so I don't want to leave people with the impression that, you know, if, um, if, uh, you know, if it's just easy to take some pills and off you go, because for some people, um, depending, Sterling on, you know, what their work situation is, what their financial situation is, what their family situation is, um, you know, their stigma associated with diabetes there, you know, there's lots of stuff that can get in the way of people being able to manage well, including, and as inflation goes up, including not always being able to afford the medication. Yeah, yeah. 
lots of work to do. So, Laura, let's talk very briefly. I don't have all the time in the world, and this is a fascinating conversation. We're very grateful for your time and mindful of the cab to the airport that you're going to catch in a couple of minutes. So, uh, but yes. how, how, suppose now I'm listening about to this for the first time, and I know I'm a little off my game. Things just don't feel 100% right, but I can't quite put my finger on what it is. What are the symptoms of someone who might have diabetes and not know about it? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you're noticing you're a lot thirstier than you used to be, um, if you're noticing you're visiting the washroom a lot more, um, if you're noticing that there are certain times, especially a couple hours after eating, that you're unusually craving some sugar or, you know, you just feel like I'm a bit off and I would feel better if I could just have a little nip of something, Mm. a little cookie or something like that. Any of those, it doesn't mean you have diabetes or prediabetes, but it is starting to be an indication that maybe you should have a conversation with your healthcare provider. And again, that blood test, of course, is, is the definitive answer because there it is in black and white. There's your number. But we just can't, yep. a person, you just can't go to the local life labs and say, I'd like a diabetes blood test, please. They won't do that. You need to have a, a physician yeah. uh, request one on your behalf, correct? Exactly, exactly. And that is something, Sterling, that um, we are talking with governments about, which is given this prevalence and given how this is increasing, not decreasing in among Canadians, is that something we should start thinking about, yeah. screening people for this and, and making that available so people can go to their local lab and get it and then start a conversation with their doctor. But at this point in time, yep, you need to go to whoever your healthcare provider is Um, And you could even do that at a walk-in clinic Mm -hmm. and just say, you know, I'm having some symptoms and I just would like to know um, what my, it's called A1C is. But if you just say, I I have some concerns that maybe, you know, these are some symptoms of diabetes, that's a very simple blood test. Sure. Very simple. And and they will, they can... um, Make sure you get that. Well, and full full marks, by the way, to your webmaster and social media team there at Diabetes Canada, Laura. Your website is terrific. It's a great source of information and, and a great place to start off just in terms of self-education. It's diabetes.ca, friends, and it's very, very good. The uh, CEO and president of Diabetes Canada is Laura Siren in Calgary, about to jump on a plane. Laura, thanks for this. We appreciate <laughs> your time. Off you go. Well, thank you, Sterling, and and have a, uh, a happy Diabetes Awareness Month. Lots of chatter these days about flu shots and vaccines and variants and increased uh, noteworthy activity flu-wise right across the country. And there seems to be a little foot dragging going on on the part of some Canadians. Here to talk more about it is Dr. Brian Conway, the medical director of the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway is also an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Conway, good morning, sir, and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. A pleasure to be here. It's nice to have you with us, Dr. Conway. Talk to us a little bit, sir, about what you understand to be a certain degree of reluctance among we British Columbians with respect to getting that 2022 all-important flu shot. There seems to be a bit of foot dragging going on. Well, we got off to a good start. Over 630,000 people have uh, gotten their flu shots a bit earlier than we're 
we're used to, but it, it seems to be slowing down. People are tired of getting shots. They're thinking, this is another shot, another one I don't need. I've had all the COVID shots. I don't need anything more. You do need a flu shot this year. We've had a bad year in Australia. It's a bad year already in eastern Canada, bad year in Alberta. It'll make its way west. Get your flu shot. Yeah, Dr. Tam, the uh, Canadian public health officer, is uh, is noting the resurgence or a surge in cases countrywide, uh, and certainly British Columbians are not immune from any national trends. What uh, what beyond the the obvious fatigue with uh, getting shots and and having had quite enough of that, uh, is there some misunderstanding with respect to the efficacy of flu shots in BC? Well, we got used to uh, talking about vaccines with 80 or 90 percent efficacy, the mRNA, COVID shots, traditionally flu shots that have been very effective at reducing burden of flu in the community are about 50, 60 percent effective on the whole. So people are saying, well, this isn't effective enough for me to take. It prevents the severe disease more than it prevents all of disease. We learned that from COVID. So if you are at risk of getting very sick from influenza, you might still get the flu if you get a flu shot, but you're much less likely to require hospitalization or to get very sick from it. So it's a very effective shot and one that's worth getting. Right. Now, Dr. Conway, one of the things that's happening here uh, for many British Columbians these days, myself included, sir, is we're receiving invitations from the vaccine data place. And in my case, I received an invitation to get both a flu shot and my fifth, as it turns out, in my case, COVID booster. Now, I had already had a flu shot a couple of days before receiving that invitation. But my question to you is, is it okay to get these shots together or should you stagger them? When, when you get an invitation like that, should you book your flu shot first and go back for your COVID booster? What's the protocol there, Dr. Conway? It's fine to get both together. One doesn't interfere with the other in terms of the efficacy of the immunization. It saves you time. You may get a little bit more of a reaction to getting the two shots together, sort of pain where the injections occurred and feeling a little bit, uh, a little bit achy for the day. But that would be the only difference between getting them together and staggering them. And I think you know, it's worth getting them both together. It's done. It's one one event, one time you have to go and get them. And you're protected against two important viruses that could cause severe disease. So and enjoy the convenience of the invitation and take them both while they're being offered simultaneously is your advice, correct? That's absolutely. There's a lot of research that supports that. And, uh, and uh, you shouldn't worry about getting both of them together. In fact, uh, it probably is a, is a great idea for uh, for you to do dr conway i wonder sir if you could speak to something that we hear anecdotally quite a lot at flu shot season and i've been getting my flu shot for years some people will say well you know i've never get had the flu before and i've never had a flu shot before but this year i decided to go out and get my flu shot and darn if i didn't get the flu shot and within a matter of days afterwards got a case of the flu how on earth does that happen <laughs> Well, one doesn't relate to the other. It's just okay. a, a sort of a, a fluke that you got sick right after uh, right after your flu shot. It may be that you had some side effects of the vaccination. It passed, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't really uh, the flu. But uh, in many in many instances, because flu is always around year after year, 
Sure. People don't get the flu because they're protected by community immunity. It's just it's out there and you're kind of protected. We haven't had that kind of immunity over the past two years because we haven't had flu. So you really need to get a flu shot, especially in situations like we're having this year. And uh, the argument that you never got it really doesn't work uh, in this current circumstance. Yeah, and Dr. Conway, we're also seeing a thing with the children of Canada who have not enjoyed the ability to hang out with each other for the last couple of years and develop those natural immunities you just referenced a moment ago. And we're seeing a tremendous spike in respiratory ailments in young Canadian children as a direct result of that this year. What do you recommend for their parents? Get all the shots that your child is entitled to. Encourage them to understand that vaccines are our first line of defense. If your child is sick, keep them home and keep them away from other sick children as best you can. If they've been sick, this is when we're going to start to to think about wearing uh, masks for the few days after we start getting better to reduce the risk of transmission. And you've learned to wash your hands over the past two years. It's a great habit. Keep it up. That also helps reduce transmission. I'm glad you raised the notion of masks, Dr. Conway, because it seems to be enjoying a resurgence in terms, at least of the public consciousness. There's a considerable amount of increased discussion about, and of course, the federal government this week recommending the use and wearing of masks in indoor environments, not not mandating, but recommending. And what do you make of that? I think we're not going to go back to the COVID-type mandates where masks were ubiquitous in our environment. There are certain environments, such as our clinic and many healthcare centers, probably most healthcare centers, where masks are still being, being worn. And if you are in a situation where there's a lot of circulating virus in the community, where there's many, many cases, it may be that locally we will ask people to wear masks for a period of time to sort of reduce the transmission that seems to be occurring. But masks will be part of our normal lives going forward. We will use them judiciously and strategically to help us live as normal a life as possible. Right. And a final question to you, Dr. Conway, and we're grateful for your time on a Saturday morning, sir. This uh, this COVID booster business that I've received an invitation for, I've had four shots for crying out loud, and yet they tell me there are variants that I need to be boosted against. Shot number five is important. Yes? If you have not gotten a bivalent booster, the newer boosters, and your last shot was more than three to six months ago, this is a situation where you are getting your next shot. It's important to do so, and it sets you up for what we think is going to be a yearly shot going forward. It will protect you optimally right now and probably protect you until the next shot is due at the same time as your flu shot about a year from now. All right, Dr. Conway, excellent advice. We appreciate your time on a Saturday. Thanks ever so much for joining us. We'll do this again. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. We mentioned, of course, the Liberals are voting uh, tomorrow through Thursday on a name change as they gear up for the next round of, of activity politically in British Columbia. And that activity will be the David Eby era. Mr. Eby will be sworn in as the province's premier this coming week. And uh, off we go with the NDP Eby area. However, there are those in the NDP or would-be NDP party members who see the Eby area, era rather, as already a divided 
founded political movement. One of those people is Kelsey Hennon, who uh, was a very big supporter of uh, Anjali Apaturai. Kelsey, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Sirleen. Good to have you with us. Uh, you say uh, the uh, the the process by which uh, Mr. Horgan's resignation, uh, the torch gets passed to Mr. Eby, all the MLAs are on side. It's all terribly cozy and smooth. And then all of a sudden, out of the woodwork, pops Anjali Apaturai and her eco-warriors determined to let the NDP in British Columbia know they're not nearly left-wing enough. And off we go with this very messy process that never really became a leadership race. And here you are supporting the person who at least wanted to give it a go. So where are you? Where are you this morning, Kelsey? Now that it's all over, I'm in Vancouver uh, this morning. Um, but yeah, honestly, in, in the, I think the problem here is it's hard to not feel like we live in a managed democracy because the idea that the BC NDP has not made mistakes uh, is just is not true. Uh, and there's a lot of things that BC NDP members would like to see happen that the parties keep voting for. Uh, you know, other other groups like the Union of BC Municipalities keep voting for, and the problem is just, just ignoring them. Uh, you know, I could give a bunch of examples. Uh, you know, lowering the voting age to 16. You know, we have people with dementia in this province who can't recognize their own children uh, who can vote, but teenagers proficient in calculus who can't. Uh, pets and rentals, vacancy control, uh, one that Oregon actually ran on, free birth control, they still haven't done. Uh, so, the, you know, the idea that members are just happy and that there's not change we could be talking about, uh, I think it's just absurd. And, and Jolly kind of stepped up to the plate to kind of offer the ability to just have a debate. So, Kelsey, what happened, though? Why did this whole thing get off the tracks as fast as it was? You were talking about managed democracy, and clearly the powers that be in the B.C. NDP were quite disturbed by this disruptive person and her supporters to the point where, ultimately, she became disqualified from actually even having a fight. So how did that play out from the perspective of one of her supporters, you? Yeah, I mean, I I think... They're happy to have an election so long as they can control the results. Uh, and the second that Anjali signed up so many members, uh, I think in a grassroots way, by the way, not, not through anything nefarious, that then resulted in them getting very scared and uh, basically playing letter of the law games in order to disqualify her I mean, you know, on these trumped up charges. So what about this membership business? That seemed to be the crux. And a lot of us, you know, sitting on the sidelines, Kelsey, watching the process go by. And Elizabeth Cull was sort of the the arbiter of, of this whole thing and, and the rule maker and certainly the person who passed along the decision by the party rules committee. But where did, where did the, the, the train really go off the rails with respect to party membership? There are allegations of improper uh, bringing people on board, other people paying for memberships. The, the, I mean, it's not new to the political process for crying out loud but it happened again with the ndp race well the thing is you know it's not like there were dead people signing up or anything right, right. what happened was you know um uh, dogwood and this is totally fine third-party activity was they sent a text to their members we live in a democracy and they said hey you should consider this there's a there's a, a leadership vote going on and so they did this but also i think you know the idea that you can have a leadership election that is going to decide the premier of british columbia that you could just expect to get away with not nobody's signing up for that is, is ridiculous and so you know, that that's the real weird assumption is if you have that kind of vote, people are going to sign up in droves. And they did. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, when, when suddenly you can't control the result, you, you want to change it. Um, the actual allegations, you know, to give you some context, Elizabeth called change, uh, change the rules 
so you know three times on a jolly, uh, and then after the fact applied the new rules uh, to the you know to the previous interpretation, uh, which is you know that's just prejudicial. So. I think Angeli actually had a case in court, but that doesn't look like she's pursuing. So it. is is this going is this going to end up in court, or or have the powers that be on both sides of the divide decided that whatever the difficulties going forward, it's not going to end up in the courts because that becomes the most public display of disunity. Yes, uh, and it's I mean it's up to Anjali uh, to make that decision, and it, it appears that she's going to try to change the party from within, which I think is disappointing. I, I did believe she had a case. What about the the membership uh, of the legislature? As I understood it, Kelsey, most MLAs, if if not all, were on side with the passing of the torch directly from Horgan to EB, uninterrupted. Uh, let's just keep the ball in the air and just keep rolling. It's all we've got the momentum. Let's just keep going. Were there any maverick MLAs that you're aware of who did express support for a Padurai? I am personally not aware of any. Um, however, I think you have to understand the culture of the NDP a little bit, which is that, you know, a lot of those MLAs are scared of not getting into cabinet or facing reprisals if they don't go with the right one. And I think, you know, you had Ravi Kalong, who was actually potentially going to challenge Abe. They worked something out. And then from there, the so-called unity existed. But if you look at the BC Liberal Party, that's not exactly how they do things. You know, they, they always have MLAs together trying to challenge each other for a leadership. And they did this while in government multiple times. Mm-hmm. So it is weird that the NDP seems unable of doing the same thing. Mr. Eby seems to be pretty hard-nosed. He has a reputation for being pretty hard-nosed in terms of getting what he wants. He has a focus. He has an agenda. He hasn't announced a great deal of what he plans to do in his first 100 days in office as premier. But you get the feeling there's a fairly clearly defined agenda that he intends to accomplish pretty much bar anything that comes his way. How do you think he's going to handle this divide in his party? I mean, he's going to get sworn in as premier in a few days, Kelsey, and he knows... Not everybody in his party is is applauding. That's correct. I mean, the NDP has handed David Evie a poison chalice, uh, and he has to drink from it. And uh, I don't think there's much solution. You know, they have you know, they're kind of at a crossroads. They can either offer bold policies that can bring in, you know, for example, BC Greens, who let's be clear are 15 percent of the popular vote last election, or they can kind of go the other direction and kind of be the federal liberals of BC and try to take the centrist route. Uh, and that's, you know, his choice. Personally, I think he needs to take the bold policies to unite the party again so that they can actually you know, put forward a united front and make the Greens irrelevant by taking their issues over. So uh, I get the feeling that you, you say that personally you would prefer that Mr. Eby and company do this. But I get these. I'm reading between the lines, perhaps, Kelsey, and I'm getting the feeling that you don't expect it. I don't expect it. I hope it, though. So uh, a more centrist, uh, a stay, stay the course kind of uh, Horgan passing torch, uh, more of same? Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. Yeah, uh, I, I would not expect too much bold policy, but he, I, let's hope it happens. I mean, to be clear, Ebby did make some great announcements. You know, uh, when he like when Anjali actually stepped forward, he's like, wow, I could actually lose this thing. He then actually put forward a housing policy that was quite good. You know, limiting age restrictions on stratas. So, you know, you don't get evicted if you get pregnant. Uh, you know, eliminating rental restrictions on stratas. And, you know, generally just, uh, you know, 
making sure that there's more housing. Uh, but the policy itself is quite bold, one of the boldest we've heard. But that happened because Anjali actually challenged the leadership. So whether he can continue to do that or not remains to be seen. Interesting. The dynamic of challenging from within was what got that done. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how much control he's going to exert over those who would challenge from within. Kelsey Hannon, thanks for this. Great to have you on the show this morning. Thanks so much, Sterling. Here's a quote from an article written by our next guest a couple of days ago. This is about the big uh, environmental conference COP27 currently underway in Egypt. Quote, among the 20 major economies attending, Canada ranks behind only Saudi Arabia when it comes to per capita emissions. Yes, we're almost as bad as the Saudis and everyone knows what that means we're bad. This kind of accusation happens relatively often these days. The per capita comparison has become a staple in the various environmental assessment reports put out by environmental groups worldwide. It's also completely bogus. This is part of an article entitled Don't Be Fooled by Per Capita Emissions Metrics. The author of the article is Senior Fraser Institute Fellow Kenneth Green. Dr. Green is on the line this morning. Good morning and welcome to the show, sir. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Ken, uh, tell us a little bit about these uh, per capita emissions metrics. Why are they so widely used and so popular and what's wrong with them? Well, I think they're widely used and popular because they appeal to people's uh, innate feeling of fairness. We have a there, there's basically people have an innate desire to be fair about things, and so when it's pitched that you're being unfair about something that is seen seen to be a major problem for other people, it makes you immediate. It, it triggers your emotions. It makes you feel, oh yeah, I, I'm doing something wrong. It's a guilt trip in a sense. Um, and it's 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 a guilt trip that's just it's subtle and it's insinuous it's insidious because it slides in around your your rational thought that makes you think oh yeah I'm doing too, more than somebody else is therefore bad well that's not reality right it's that that's an assumption that we live in a zero sum world where everyone has to be the same and what they do or they use or they have in the way of resources is essentially a collectivist um, worldview and it slides in. Uh, but behind your, your reasoning faculties to make you feel guilty about doing things differently than other people. In the article, um, that's the biggest problem. With it. Yeah, and in the article, you talk about the and, and I use I, I deliberately went for the quote about how how bad we are. We're as bad as the Saudis, and you know, you tell a Canadian they're as bad as the Saudis, and boy, I'll tell you, you've hit them right where it hurts because we really do value our moral superiority, dirty oil versus Canadian uh, oil sand stuff, and our our attention to detail and our oil industry's attempts at least to self-regulate and clean up their act and all of that sort of thing. None of that's going on in Saudi Arabia. So what would a more appropriate comparison be done, Dr. Green, between Canada and Saudi Arabia to point out what's really going on? Well, the, the better comparison would be what is the contribution of Canada as a country? If you're looking at Canadians, you're looking at Canada as a country. And if you're looking at Saudi Arabians in this example, um, and I did not mean that particularly slag the Saudis, that the fact that we're bad is it's kind of a bit of a joke, but it is a pride thing. Uh, but anyway, the, the more relevant metric would be what share of the overall problem, if there is, if you consider this a problem, um, 
climate change a problem. Not consider it real, but I think it's exaggerated. Anyway, what share of the problem do you contribute compared to somebody else? And what is it within your capabilities to do, given the other circumstances of your country's nature, temperatures, weathers, transportation distance, manpower, human factors, um, those are a more relevant uh, factor than per capita um, emissions of, of a particular kind of gas, um, greenhouse gases in this case. And yet the, the per capita emissions numbers seem to be very expedient for uh, purposes of illustration. Uh, well, here's, here's one country, country A versus country B, Canada versus Saudi Arabia, etc. It is a metric that is widely accepted. What other metrics should Canadians who are trying to understand what this is all about and make some sense of our place in it all, what other metrics should we be paying attention to? Right. Well, one quick note on that, which is this per capita thing goes back quite a ways that David Suzuki Foundation, amongst other environmental groups, pioneered this over the last 20 years. And I've written about it over that time um, with regard to all of the other kind of pollution measures that we face, even within Canada, air pollution controls, water pollution, et cetera. Per capita measures have been used to beat Canadians about the head and shoulders now for about 20 years. More relevant uh, measures, though, though, would be how, more, how much frequency or how much greater frequency are we experiencing storms uh, in eastern Canada? How, what's the frequency of droughts going across uh, central Canada, mm-hmm. Canada, across the prairies? What's the frequency of actual heat waves? And then what's the cost of energy uh, that would allow people to moderate either cold snaps or heat waves? Because we, we seem to forget about the fact that Unlike other other animals and things, we actually have some say in what our our response is to temperatures and to climate conditions um, that that other animals don't have. And so the relevant metrics would be what is putting people at harm, and how is that changing over time, and how can we deal with should we what, what's the most efficient way to deal with that? Also, the most respectful of individual rights and Canadians' charters of rights and freedoms. Um, what are our best ways of dealing with that? Those are metrics Canadians should be paying more attention to than simply does does Jim put out more greenhouse gas emissions than Stuart? Well, we don't really know why. Maybe Jim has, as I do, has arthritis and has to keep his house very carefully temperature regulated, um, and therefore he uses more energy. It's, but it's, it's a morally bogus comparison to say he's bad because the per capita use is higher. One of the uh, um, indicators that's uh, being brought up in this round in Egypt, this time at COP27, is something that's been discussed in the wings at previous gatherings, Ken. And that's this whole notion of the transfer of wealth that Stephen Harper referred to a dozen or more years ago uh, as sort of at the root of this international climate movement. We're now starting to see someone from, I believe it was the World Bank, but I may be wrong, a, a senior official with one of the World Financial Financial institutions stood up in Egypt a couple of days ago and broached the subject of what they called compensation, the transfer of wealth from wealthy countries to those in, for example, Africa and the developing world by way of creating uh, accommodation for the costs of climate change in those countries that can ill afford to deal with them. Were you surprised by that? No, not at all. And uh, Stephen Harper was was a very uh, keen observer to note that. But the reality is uh, transfer of wealth, redistribution of wealth, has been at the core of every climate agreement, going all the way back to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, um, under George Herbert Walker Bush, from the U.S. perspective, signed it. Um, I'm not, I don't remember who signed it, from, from, uh, in, who was in, in power in Canada at the time. But the concept that developed countries would pay more 
and transfer wealth to developing countries mm-hmm. uh, to sort of make up for the early development of those countries and their early emission of greenhouse gases. That has been at the central core of every climate agreement ever inked. Um, and it's been the breaking point for almost every negotiation that has been held since. And it will be the breaking point for this one, as it was for um, Paris, as it was for Copenhagen, as it was uh, including for Kyoto. It was one of the first ones that, that anybody actually uh, would be cognizant of. How do you mean, um, how do you mean it, breaking it, point? It is the core of climate change. Pardon me? How do you mean breaking point? What's, uh, what's the deal-breaking aspect of this, uh, this transfer of wealth that you're talking about? Because the breaking point is that at the end of the day, after these negotiations go through their predictable arc of drama, um, what developed countries are simply not going to pay the scale of wealth. We're talking many hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars yes. of wealth being transferred mm-hmm. to, developing, to developing countries. They're not going to do it. It's against their self-interest as a country. It's against the individual interests of the people of the country. And it has, always has been and it always will be. And therefore, really, uh, it's, it's never going to happen. And that's why at the end of the day, they, they end with, uh, well, we didn't come to an agreement to this agreement at this conference, but we agreed to meet again and fly in in our private jets mm-hmm. great greenhouse gases madly to discuss this again over really fancy meals in an exotic location. Right. So more, um, more of same, very little accomplished. Exactly. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.